I remember arriving in this little village of Babushkina, a snow little timber home in the forest of northwest Russia, and this lady came out onto the road. It had already been dropping to minus 15. And she said, you're not going any further until you have a, a hot mushroom soup with me. So in we went to, to, to her home. And that's when I began to defrost. And I noticed this terrible tingling in my toes. Removed my woolen socks to discover these uh, great big purple lumps. This lady looked down and screamed out in Russian, Obmrzhenia, uh, uh, you've got frostbite. She picked up my runners, tossed them out the door in a bit of a rage, gave me a pair of felt Russian boots, dragged me down to the doctor's clinic, where before I knew it I was rushed past the cure, patients laid down, and this doctor uh, pulled out a pair of scissors, and before I knew it these bits of flesh were, were snipped away, uh, wrapped in tissue paper and tossed in a bin, and I was still there with my Russian English dictionary looking for words like painkillers, uh, will it hurt, <laughs> my Russian in years to come would, would get a lot better. Um, and it did seem as if we had taken a big risk, hadn't paid attention to perhaps some of the precautions we, we should have, i.e. getting some much better winter boots. Um, but it turned out my toes weren't so bad. Uh, they recovered. And what I'm getting to is that this lady, Baba Galia, we called her, she became, well, if you like, my Russian grandmother for the next, I guess, 10 years. I visited her in the Black Sea by horse years later. I came back after I'd written my first book and hand-delivered it to her. Uh, she, there was an incredible camaraderie forged, friendship forged in that time of difficulty. And uh, it does illustrate the way in which uh, when people see that you're going out of your way uh, to, to strive for something that's difficult, um, where perhaps you have a sense of naivety, where you're inevitably going to make a lot of mistakes, uh, people come out of the woodwork uh, to help you. And they'll do everything in their power uh, to, to help carry you along. Tim Cope is a truly inspiring figure. I remember my Russian friend, the first thing he told me when I suggested the idea. You won't make it more than 100 kilometers without being robbed. He's journeyed 10,000 kilometers from Mongolia to Hungary on a horseback, rode 4,500 kilometers from southern Siberia to the Arctic Ocean, and cycled 10,000 kilometers from Moscow to Beijing. And what's more, we'll be eaten alive by Siberian mosquitoes, thousands of them. He's a filmmaker, an author, and an inspiration to future generations asking them to look beyond their self-imposed limitations and answer the question, what if? Much of Tim's journey has been alongside his loyal companion Tigan, a Kazakh dog, that joined him at a moment of desperation while he was huddled away for three months, sheltering from a devastating storm and looking for a way out. This week's episode begins at the crossroads that defined who Tim was destined to become the moment he abandoned his law degree in Canberra, a move that he says saved his life. My young outlook on life, I've grown up in Gippsland, it just kept expanding with every single day. And uh, when I came back to study law, uh, I, for me it was a, a bit like a, a death in life for me. So I, I found a much more exciting decision, which was to go and study as a wilderness guide in Finland. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship. And once again, I found, I found this support all along the way. And so I, I just felt that um, every time I decided to uh, dive in head first into something I was passionate about, uh, people around me recognized that and, and, and did their part in, uh, in, in allowing me to 
keep moving and, and to survive and to prosper. There's a wonderful power in the naivety of uh, youth when you're starting out. It's, it's sort of this sense that you don't really know what you don't know. And every experience is broadening that horizon. And a lot of things that you would look back on 30 years later with a little bit of uh, perspective and say, well, that really shouldn't have been possible or that was very dangerous or that could have ended in disaster. But when you're 20, you just don't think about it in those terms. It's like, of course, it's going to work out. And if it doesn't, it's going to be a great adventure while it doesn't work out. That's sort of the, the default. And I've always been fascinated by how you capture that later in life, because I think that there are some people who, through no fault of their own, miss that window where you know they, they do get onto a path and they, they get to the point where they're sort of in their you know late 20s, early 30s, perhaps they do already have finished that law degree, they're starting a career and yet they can sense that there's something maybe more out there for them. And of course, you know there are many people for whom that's not true and, and something like law is their fulfilling purpose and we're not talking about that. But there are some people I think who feel like they've lost their chance. And I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about whether you think they can be recaptured later on or, or whether you have to have those formative experiences and let one thing follow from the other before you can get to that place. Well, I think f formative experiences don't dictate uh, the rest of your life necessarily. Um, we all uh, learn really big lessons in life, and yet most of us continue from time to time to uh, to make the same mistakes time over. Uh, it's it's only human. So at every stage of life, uh, there are different types of risk involved, different types of of safety and comfort, if you like. And something I reflect on very often is that for me, what began as an extremely uh, uncomfortable reality when I set off at the age of 24 to ride horses from Mongolia to Hungary, I mean, I was way out of my comfort zone. I could not ride a horse. I had this dream to ride 10,000 kilometers. I'd been told that yes, you know, a horse could turn my bones to dust, that there were wolves, that there'd be bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera. I had no idea what, what, was, um, what was coming. And I was so exhausted, so terrified of uh, thieves, wolves, as it turned out, because my horses were stolen on the fifth night. We were surrounded by wolves a couple of weeks later. Everything I'd been warned of actually did come to pass. And I couldn't ride a horse and I was terrified most of all of these, these creatures. So uh, I was so exhausted at the end of each day that I'd, I'd often find myself waking up in the entranceway of my tent, you know, with the toothbrush hanging out of my, my mouth and this kind of coagulated toothpaste <laughs> stuck down, to, to, uh, down my cheek onto my collar. It would have taken, I think, about 12 months on the road to start to feel comfortable, you know, to wake up and not feel my heart race at the thought of packing the horses, of perhaps getting kicked, uh, of, of any number of things I was terrified of. Uh, three and a half years later, when I rode into Hungary, I mean, I remember galloping bareback on my lead horse, um, sitting so still that time seemed to, to kind of pause and, 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 and go into this really beautiful slow motion uh, where I felt connected to, to everything. The horses had become an extension of my body. I now felt uncomfortable to be apart from them. And coming back to Australia, the discomfort was actually all about, well, how do I reintegrate? How do I take what I've learned into this very different environment? And like I've done for, for ever since, I have held on to that experience as my comfort zone in a new reality. And then I've had many challenges since then. But, but every single time you have to remind yourself that uh, what begins as, as, as an adventure outside the comfort zone can very quickly become um, something that's just automatic to you, it can be extremely comfortable. And then it's up to you once again to take that leap um, and to try something new, to go down that same path and risk it all, uh, all over again. And so, I don't think it matters what age. Uh, there's a there's a there's a risk that I could fall into that same comfort zone, just like anyone else. At this point, uh, no one is is immune, and no one, uh, I don't think, reaches a point in their life where, where they don't have that opportunity to, uh, to to take that to take the plunge. Uh, and take that leap of faith.
I think that's a really hopeful sentiment. You know, it's easy to think that, that people like you um, who do these sorts of things are just built from different stuff. But whether it's personality or whether it's upbringing or whatever it happens to be, that, that it's different from the average and, and therefore unattainable. And, and it's nice in a way to, to hear you reflect on the fact that even now, after all that you've done, you're just as susceptible to the same temptations or uh, frailties that all of us are. And it's not really about the the intrinsic person. It's about those decision points that you've talked about and, and being willing to be uncomfortable in order to open yourself up to what could potentially be your new home. Um, I, I want to reflect a little bit on that sense of mastery over time that you've just touched upon because it's there's such a beautiful... Uh, arc to the story that you tell about your trip across the Mongolian steppe and to the Danube in, in Hungary from this point of real naivety uh, and uh, lack of skill and awareness uh, and this slow molding and coaching process that the entire community of the steppe seems to have taken you through in their own small individual ways to build you into that person that felt at one with the horse who was at one with nature and so comfortable it was it's almost like this this communal family effort to take you from someone who was completely uh, at unease in that environment and build you into what you'd wanted to be which was essentially that nomad who was able to feel comfortable in that environment and relive some of the experiences that um, the the mongol empire had alluded to and it's it's peak and greatness it, it's just such a beautiful sentiment and, and story and i'm just interested in your reflections on on that process at times I felt as if I was kind of being ushered uh, along by these kind of guardian angels that would come out at pivotal moments when all felt almost lost. Uh, one of those happened in, in Kazakhstan. I just spent four months in, in summertime in Mongolia. Sure, the horses had been stolen. I couldn't ride and there were wolves, but it was summer. There were nomads. Uh, arriving in Kazakhstan as winter kind of started to, to bite, uh, it felt like a much darker, uh, much more sinister almost experience that lay ahead of me. A country that had been ravaged by the, the Soviet industrialization process in the 20s and 30s when when about 2.2 million nomads had actually uh, died in what was essentially an artificial famine and that that generation that had survived uh, had adapted as best they can to this new Soviet reality only to have the rug pulled out of them again when the Soviet Union collapsed and Kazakhstan found itself suddenly as an independent nation. It was a country in, in flux, uh, struggling to find identity. They didn't have enough traditional knowledge to kind of revert to their nomad life, but neither did they have that Soviet system to fall back on. I was told before I left Mongolia, well, you won't survive there more than a week without a gun. You'll probably be, be shot. <laughs> uh, about a week into my journey in Kazakhstan, having, having bought horses, uh, I, had a, I had a complete... Uh, chance meeting with a with a man in a taxi, uh, which means just a car we hailed down on the side of the road on the way to to me buying the horses. And in that car, we'd we'd come around an icy corner, and the the car had gone off the edge, and very nearly rolled down the the mountain. And um, this guy looked at me, we looked at each other, and and realised that we we had a very near miss. Uh, we exchanged addresses, we had a conversation, and he said, "Here's my address. If you come to my village." Um, uh, let me know and sure enough uh, I arrived in his village uh, found him his name was Asset and he decided spontaneously that he would guide me for the next two or three weeks uh, wh what I didn't know is that uh, that he would bring along this tiny little pup this bag of bones on matchstick legs who 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 was who, who one night leapt up leapt, leapt up all over me in under the stars and I had kind of got a glimpse of this little guy anyway a few uh, two weeks in and I, this little dog had been coming along he was he was struggling to stay warm enough uh, he was it, it looked as if he wouldn't survive more than a couple of weeks and I said, said to me in our country uh, dogs choose their humans uh, and you are definitely his <laughs> 
and that's when he gave me Tigan and we said farewell and I, I, I almost handed him back but um, our set was pretty stern. Within a couple of days I could not have lived without this little dog. We were inseparable from that moment on and I realised that in retrospect here we were the both of us. Uh, it was the first winter of his short life, he was six months old, it was my first Kazakh winter on the on the steppe and we were about to live out in parallel but together uh, our own rites of, of passage and Tegan did grow into this this proud adult dog who not only led the way and met the people and opened the doors but he did end up protecting us from wolves and thieves at night uh, as well as keeping our humour alive at times. <laughs> Someone like I said, he had much greater foresight than I ever could have. You know, he'd, he'd lived a life and he saw in me a connection to his own ancestry in his own nomadic ways. And for, for many of the people of the steppe, when they saw me coming in, it was like these dormant nomadic traditions that they'd all heard about and knew about. Uh, they suddenly came to life. Here I was, a traveller on horseback. Uh, the, the, the tradition that you should never let a, a nomad pass without inviting them in for a cup of tea. Uh, this belief that when you invite a, a person into the home as a guest, that uh, your sheep, for example, will have, uh, have spring, uh, twin lambs in the spring. Uh, this tradition that for the first three days the host has no right to ask the guests who they are, where they're from. Their obligation is to look after them. And so... I felt at times that I was being taken in like some long-lost relative. Um, and I spoke Russian, so I was able to communicate well with, with most people in Kazakhstan, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but in places like Mongolia, I didn't know the language very well. One thing in common with all these countries was that uh, they often knew my problems instinctively long before I, I knew I had them. Uh, because their own past had informed them of what the needs were, what the problems were uh, with horse travel and what everyone needed. So often they'd they'd feed Tigan before their own dogs. Uh, often even if they only had a skerrick of food, they'd usher my horses into a barn and, and, and dole out some hay and grain. Uh, so it was just... Uh, honestly, I felt as if I was uh, kind of... Rather than being the the leader of this journey, at times I felt like I was just this uh, the, the baton being passed <laughs> along this giant rel relay on the way to Hungary, and it, it completely it completely makes the concept that this was a solo journey fairly flawed. Although, of course, I mean much of the time I was alone, and it did involve arriving in places unannounced uh, where people had no idea who I was or where I was coming from. Tell me a little bit about what that solitude is like, living in your own head, living with your own company, obviously having Tigon there and, and your horses, Ogoniok and Taskinir, and, you know, there's, there's that companionship, but it's not the same as having other people around all the time. And with those long stretches where you were by yourself, how did you manage that? What was that experience like? Well, the journey became a dichotomy of retreating into my own uh, little world, with my horses, with Tigan, and then arriving in places where I'd be overwhelmed. And that I couldn't live without either, but after spending time in a village where uh, you'd be, you'd be uh, dished up enormous meals and there'd be people coming at your door and day after day, uh, I was desperate to get back out there. One of the... One of the the most extraordinary, I guess, passages of time on my journey was in the middle of Kazakhstan um, after a fairly brutal winter where we'd actually got trapped in a, in a bankrupt gold mining town 
um, where it's a long story, but Tiggin had been stolen by some unemployed mine workers and almost eaten. My, my horse had become uh, unwell, had an abscess in its hoof. Uh, there were all sorts of troubles that had taken place. Uh, but I remember heading out of there into this environment and I'd taken on this new adage that the Kazakhs have. They say that if you must rush in life, rush slowly. Uh, I'd been intensely frustrated in Akbakai that I was months behind this, this town, um, that I was months behind schedule, uh, that uh, I was now so late, I'd missed the window. Uh, but it, the people had said, every time you try to leave, something goes wrong. Your stove breaks, you get sick, chicken goes missing, you need to sit back and relax. And it struck me that, yes, being stuck in this kind of apocalyptic uh, gold mining town was not the romance uh, that I'd imagined of being with nomads uh, and perhaps perhaps um, spending my winter uh, learning about nomadic life. But they did teach me that, in fact, this in many ways was what I'd come to experience, a place where time wasn't measured in dollars and cents, where time was more about the... The, the small windows that the weather and the environment allows when you can travel. And they taught me uh, that really um, you need to wait your moment and life out there is a bit more is, is a bit like threading the eye of a needle each and every day. And I remember riding out of there, my watch had broken at this point. Uh, the snow had melted, but there was just enough to keep the horses watered in, in puddles. You imagine this is a bit like a moonscape, a big open, uh, undulating, pan, almost pancake, flat with a few dips here and there. Uh, there's no fences. There's no private property. There's no such thing as trespassing. You've only got the sun, the sky, the land, and I could have moved in any direction I pleased. And there were these uh, campsites night after night where I went to sleep knowing that not a single soul knew where I was. Only the land itself and perhaps its eyes uh, knew where I was. And that gave me this sense of a, a, a deep freedom that uh, I'm not sure I'll ever experience again in my life. Um, this, this knowledge that I could have woken up and ridden in any direction, it wouldn't have mattered. I had these, these horses beneath me that were full of energy. There was grass, there was water, there was tiggin running laps around us in the morning and um, that solitude uh, is something that that I kept inside me uh, to calm me in moments that did become all too overwhelming and, and hectic uh, and there were many of them of course particularly in the latter parts of the journey as we uh, rode off the off the big open wild step and into problems uh, of 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 human uh, that that humans had created, uh, be that uh, borders, be that cities, and many others in the as it turned out in southern Russia, uh, Ukraine and Hungary. One of the reflections uh, that you make in your book uh, is that we often can forget how much of our lives uh, we mould the environment around us, and that it was a wonderful reminder. Uh, that for the vast portion of human history and certainly for your time on that journey, that it was in fact the environment that was moulding your life, not the other way around. Uh, and that, that by itself, that philosophy of sustainability, of, of being one with your environment, of, of moving for the benefit of your animals and not forcing your animals to live in a way that you want to live for your own convenience, that that is something that has been lost in a way outside of some of these very specific areas of the world and these specific traditions. But I guess in a way that's what you're sort of reflecting on there too, isn't it? It's that sense of that openness, of that freedom, of that oneness with your surroundings and not necessarily being completely separate to it. Yes, and I think one of the, the crucial differences that perhaps many don't quite understand between sedentary cultures and nomadic cultures is that whilst in sedentary cultures humans tend to want to control their environment for their own convenience, uh, nomads tend to to adapt their lives around the needs of their animals, for example. They adapt their lives around the realities of that climate. Um, 
instead of in our modern sedentary world uh, turning on an aircon when it's a bit hot uh, or flicking on the heater uh, they might travel up to 600 kilometers a year in search of those places in the land that if you like sing in that particular season and every landscape has its season um, sometimes if you turn up as I did in places in, in, in the desert in Kazakhstan in the spring the place you definitely do not want to be it feels like this desolate dangerous place where you've got millions of ticks crawling around it's hot it's dusty uh, the ticks can kill you the, the flies can kill you But in the, in the wintertime, that's a beautiful refuge. There's a softness. You've got uh, grass, et cetera, et cetera. So they're rather molding their environment, as you said, uh, for, their own, for their own convenience, if you like. They're just simply harnessing uh, what the natural world provides and harnessing the natural behavior, in the case of their horses, um, as they move from place to place. And that, if you boil it down, it, it, it can be applied to so many different uh, ways in which our, our cultures are different. If if you take the horse as an example, uh, Mongolians today even tend to harness the natural energy of that horse to ride it out. Um, whilst in, in Europe, beginning well before the Middle Ages, the belief was that you needed to break the horse in, which meant essentially uh, breaking the spirit of that horse uh, or, or, or trying to whip the evil, if you like, out of that horse to, to bend it to, what that, to its master. And that is such a different um, approach to life. And one of the things that strikes me about nomads today is that they still, that life informs them um, every minute of every day that they're actually part of a much bigger web of life. And that's not to belittle humans. It does at times um, certainly humble you because it makes you realize that you are this tiny little speck in this big, vast environment um, and your life is, is nothing more than a blip in the, in the scale of time. But on the other hand, uh, once you understand the, the role that hum humans play in this web of life, um, it's empowering and it creates this sense of uh, belonging um, and I think we, we do naturally I and mean, understandably we become very disconnected from understanding that when we move into a, a tech-driven urbanised environment. With that belonging comes a sense of purpose too isn't it? It's about knowing what your role is you know what you're there to do and, and who you're there to serve and, and it's not focused on what is what your entitlement is uh, or, or what everyone else is there to do for you and the environment is there to do for you but rather the opposite it's, it's about where your place is and then what you're contributing um, and that's that's a, a quite a vast psychological difference in approach to life isn't it yes i remember standing up on this uh mountaintop in mongolia in the early days and it was this beautiful scene where there was a great big storm coming in over the lake uh, in the valley below, I could I could see uh, the little white tents of the nomads, uh, people going about their herding. But then a bit higher up in the slopes, there were riders uh, merging from the, the kind of pastulans into the wilds of the forest. Above them, uh, there were uh, eagles uh, circling. I could, you could see some deer scurrying away on a ridgetop. There was there was this beautiful harmony, if you like, a symphony of uh, nature in in all its forms, um, working in synchronicity uh, together. And I feel like in our world we tend to compartmentalise. We tend to uh, draw up arbitrary lines on the map, uh, whereby uh, this is uh, farmland, this is designated as forestry, this might be a national park, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, we we, we compartmentalise in a way uh, that 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 is very unnatural. Um, and uh, and these, I guess, the nomadic the nomadic people, uh, as I mentioned before, they're just constantly aware that uh, the earth was not created 
exclusively for humans. <laughs> we're, we're just we're just one of so many species on this uh, on this planet, and uh, you know we we should not we should not um, forget that for a moment. There was a constant theme in your journey that I was actually sort of surprised uh, I hadn't really reflected on before reading your story, but it was one of of humour and sort of almost cheekiness that comes with the culture of living in a difficult place and doing difficult things. And I remember you, you talking about the story of how your horses were stolen for the first time. And it's in some ways like it must have been an incredibly traumatic thing, but I just couldn't help but laugh while I was was reading it. And I, I was almost a bit ashamed of the fact that I was doing that because I could only imagine how horrible you must have felt in that moment. But I'm just interested in your reflection about how people's sense of humor and also the way that they... Uh, use their culture in a, in a way to, um, I guess, make light of difficult things struck you during your journey. And maybe you could tell a few stories that reflect that too. Uh, yes. I mean, on a journey like that, you're, you can go through just about every emotion imaginable uh, in the space of a day. And, and one of those moments was certainly the, the first horse steal when I woke up from this utopian dream, I thought, that I'd landed in with this oceanic space of, uh, of steppe green grass people bringing their animals into milk i'd set the camp up gone to sleep feeling as if this is it fifth day of the trip but i woke rudely at uh, three in the morning to the sound of the horses galloping off into the night a bit of a snigger uh, leapt up to discover that um, <clears throat> well this horse the only thing remaining of the horses was a horse bell that uh <coughs> A vet here in Australia had said I should put on the horses at night to, to as a kind of alarm to keep me me safe, and these these thieves had clearly walked up, taken the bell off the horse, jumped on and galloped away, and I went through this emotion of uh, of denial initially, uh, and then uh, anger, uh, bewilderment, and then it just became one of. Um, more or less becoming dejected and then and then this this remarkable kind of calm um where someone had told me well if you don't solve your problems before the sun comes up you never will i had one horse left i had nothing to lose and i remember riding out from the campsite uh in in a kind of aimless direction i mean these horses could have been anywhere and that was when the sun started to to rise and i'd finally managed to cajole this horse into moving forward at more than a walk <laughs> which was a, a, a bit of success for me at that point as, a, as an amateur uh, keeping in mind on the first day of the trip I'd been too scared to jump, jump on and so I'd farewell all those people who'd come to see the, the person riding in the footsteps of their ancestor <laughs> only to see him kind of stumble off leading the horses on foot anyway I'll never forget this moment as the sun comes up and it just cast this beautiful golden light over the land. There was dust in the air from a distant herd. And I was in the moment. And suddenly I did not care uh, what had happened. I'd left the past behind, the past of planning, the past of uncertainties. I was here and I felt like I uh, somehow fitted hand in glove with time. And miraculously, half an hour later, this herd came over a hill and there were these, uh, my horses. And the nomad said, I must have tied them badly. Uh, he gave them back uh, uh, and he uh, actually made or gave me a couple of new halters and taught me this wonderful saying that a person on the step without friends is as uh, on the step without friends is as narrow as a, as a finger and with friends is as wide as the step which turned out to be a, a really pivotal uh, philosophy in the years to come It would have been uh, a, few, a few months later when I had my second horse still, there'd end up being four or five of them. Uh, but I started to realize as time went on that there's a tradition out there that if someone's trying to steal your horse, 
you need to embrace it as a compliment uh, and not get offended. Initially, I was furious with these with these people. Um, sometimes the first thing they'd say to me is, give me your horse or can I have your horse? What have you got three for? <laughs> and, and I was quite insulted, but learned that in, in a way it's a backhanded uh, compliment for the animals that I had uh, and always said, with a grain of humor and I, take, I I took that in my stride and a couple of things I wanted to say is there were there was something my editor said many years later uh, really struck a chord looking back he said in my writing he said one particular chapter I was writing he said uh, in your writing try to be more curious to understand and less offended and upset by the way these people are behaving and I realize, of course, that in life that's one of the most important things you need to do. And certainly had I become offended, everyone tried to steal a horse from me on this trip, it would have been a, a misery because it happened all the time. I had to use that opportunity to branch out, to to extend myself and understand. And if I could just fit one of the more uh, entertaining horse steals into my into this little story six months later in Kazakhstan I'd arrived in this railway siding uh, it was winter sub-zero there was no water but there was also no snow on the ground so I had nothing to to hydrate the horses with but on these little railway sidings where there were railway workers this industrial train would come in with water for them and they agreed to, to give me water but they were quite rowdy they after work they invited me in to drink some vodka and one of them came up to me and said I've heard that someone 40 kilometers away in the next village is going to come and steal your horses tonight and I kind of uh, brushed it off I thought it was just a a joke Um, sure enough that night I woke up uh, once again after midnight to the sound of this bashing and crashing and could just make out the silhouette of my horse uh, uh, heading off and someone running. What had happened is that someone had jumped on my horse, galloped off, only to discover it was still tied up by its lower front leg and the horse had tumbled forward. The thief had been thrown off, perhaps concussed, I don't know. Um, I ran to the railway siding. These men came out and helped. We caught the thief and you've may have already guessed this but it was the same man who had warned me about uh, horse thievery early in the uh, <laughs> in the evening um, that night someone tried to steal the horses a second time I slipped on the ground with the literally uh, from memory with the the horse leads in my hand when the sun came up I was ready to get out of there but someone had also stolen my hobbles and my head torch so eventually I managed to rouse the the thief uh, who had had far too much vodka? He came out and eventually, uh, after denying it, handed over my belongings, and he said, uh, "Well done, Tim. According to to custom, you've um, you've managed to steal your horse back." Uh, a bit of a backstory: There's a tradition called Barimta, which dictates that as the offended, you're allowed to steal your horse back. Traditionally, only you're allowed to you're only allowed to do that. Uh, honourably during daylight hours, uh, not at night time, um, but you are also allowed in the past to kidnap the wife or husband of the thief. Um, and this man's out there uh, kind of uh, pale. He's, um, he, he looks as if he's about to stumble and collapse, but his great big grin spreads across his face and he said, well, you know, you have managed to steal your horse back and according to Barimta, uh, you might as well uh, kidnap my wife but please take her all the way to Hungary and then he kind of erupted in this uh, in this croaky laugh and at that moment I was just uh, furious with the guy and I rode off and did not turn my head uh, but um, there was there was um, so commonly on this journey this very fine line between friend and foe and there was always uh, this sense of humor and often nothing or no malicious in, uh, intent <laughs> it's this sort of honor among thieves isn't it you know it's it, there's a code everyone follows the code but no one takes offense if things don't work out the way and sort of sees the lighter side of of the mishap if it doesn't work out quite how you expect it's sort of the it sounds almost like it's it's deadly serious but it's also a game in a way and it's a test 
Absolutely, it was always a, a test, and he had he had dropped more than enough hints, and I hadn't been good enough to to take them seriously. <laughs> also fascinated by the you sort of alluded to it before but how you came to represent in a way something that many of these people through no fault of their own had lost um, in the sense that as a lot of these regions had been taken over by Soviet rule there'd been a homogenization of culture and, and a loss of that tradition which had spanned enough generations for it to be distant to the people who were living there now but then having to re-establish that identity with with new national boundaries and you reflect when you came into Hungary that the uh, major people who were there sort of saw you as a continuation, if you like, of that tradition, but were somewhat mystified by the fact that you had such a, a commitment and a passion for that tradition, given you'd come from Australia. And I'm interested in, in how different people and different cultures saw you as some way, as that, that continuation of what had come before, uh, but also as an outsider too. And, and there's a, that dichotomy and how they managed that and how you managed that throughout the trip. Mm. Yes, I think in the in the early days, uh, in, in Mongolia particularly, I think they had a great fear that as a young non-step person, uh, there was no way I was going to make it alive uh, or, or with my horses alive at that. Um, and 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 I was from this distant land that, that they could not fathom. And yet, I guess the beauty of this journey uh, and the very reason I chose to ride horses in the beginning is that here I was a foreigner riding in doing the thing that came most, uh, in Mongolia particularly, that came most naturally to them. And it was the most intuitive thing for them to do. So they, as I mentioned before, they knew my needs, they knew my problems long before I did. They would literally come out of their gurs with the monocular and they will have... Uh, already worked out exactly uh, what state I was in, how many horses I had, whether they were tired, whether they weren't, how much gear I had, what type of saddle I had, <laughs> you know, long before I even, even rocked up. And by that stage, they'd have a, a great big tub of yogurt for me to gulp down and a, 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 a tray of uh, dried curd. And so they saw me very quizzically. Uh, they didn't really know what quite to make of me. Um, and of course, I had a long way to go. Um, when I arrived in places like uh, like Kazakhstan, it took on a, a slightly different different meaning, as you've pointed out. There's this incredible melancholy about uh, people living in regional areas, in that they, I think, there is this 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 um, this belief, this unspoken or unconscious belief, that at some point in the future they will return to the past of their ancestors. Uh, the nostalgia is so great that it hangs like a cloud and uh, these people who, unlike in Mongolia today, are largely horseless. Uh, they're pedestrianised. They do not have the ability to migrate because they don't have enough animals. Uh, many of the animals in Kazakhstan, I should point out, were culled or shipped off to, to distant uh, meat factories in, in the 90s during that period of in incredible chaos. Um, but they'd be singing these mournful songs about their life. And when I came riding in, it, it kind of represented that life that they, they had lost. And so their natural reaction was to enact these traditions that they, they didn't have the, the opportunity to enact um, in the same way. And so um, I felt like a shadow of their own ancestor, in a way, riding, riding through uh, in the way that they, they were treating me. But in each and every place, it was slightly different. In a place like Kalmykia, which is the only Buddhist republic in geographical Europe, uh, the Kalmyks are Mongols who made the who were the last people to make the great track trek from Asia to Europe and back again, way back in the in the 17th century. In the 18th century, these Kalmyk people, under oppression from the Russian Tsar, had decided to make this this incredible journey pilgrimage back to their origins in Mongolia in doing so crossing Kazakhstan in the middle of winter about 200,000 of them had set off and only and, and who knows how many animals 
only half had survived the journey six months later. Um, and those who remained in Kalmykia uh, have gone on to, to, to create uh, what is still known as the Republic of Kalmykia. And when I arrived in their lands, it was an amazing experience to hear Mongolian tongue. And they were, in their mind, I was someone who had retraced in the opposite way, if you like, the 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 journey of those who had who had gone to Mongolia and never come back, um, and arriving in the in the Cossack steppe of southern Russia, the Cossacks had been deeply oppressed during Stalin's time. They were never, if you like, an indigenous nomadic people of the steppe, but they were freedom lovers. Uh, 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 many of them were uh, Slavic in origin, but had gone on to form their own rich nomadic culture, if you like. And they saw me as representing, once again, of traditions that had been lost. And then there was the Crimean Tatars who had lost their horse riding culture a lot, a lot earlier. For them, I kind of symbolised this great revival of their culture in the face of Russian opposition. Uh, the Tatars had been actually exiled to Uzbekistan and Siberia in 1944. Uh, many had died en route. Many had died in exile, but some had begun returning since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And in me, once again, I was uh, I was kind of fated as, as someone who had made that great trek, like their own ancestors, going right back to the Mongols and, and much, much earlier. The Tatars traced their ancestry to to peoples that have lived a lot longer than, than the period of Genghis Khan. Um, and there were the Hutsuls of the Carpathians who actually uh, inherited the descendants of the horses that the Mongols left behind. <laughs> uh, but lastly, the, the Magyars in, in Hungary. And this was the, the, the kind of uh, the unease I had arriving in Hungary in terms of what would my reception be. Of course, Hungary is renowned as the place perhaps most hard done by when the Mongols uh, did reach Europe. They wiped Hungary off the map in, in many, many ways, uh, killed an extraordinary number of people. But in me, they saw uh, this connection to not so much the, the wave of Mongolian conquerors, but more the, if you like, the nomad brethren, um, because whether it be the, the Hungarians, the Kazakhs, the Mongols, they all share this deep history of the horse and nomadic life. And so they overlooked that, and I arrived, word had spread across the border uh, into Hungary, and I don't think I put up the tents more, tent more than once or twice. Um, and one of these nomads looked at me, one of these horsemen looked at me one day and said, well, um, we've all concluded that you're completely mad to have done this journey. <laughs> you know, it would make more sense. We'd understand where you got the passion from if you were a Hungarian or Mongolian. But we can see in your heart and mind that you've become a nomad uh, and a great horseman. And that was an extraordinary thing to hear, uh, uh, thinking back to those beginnings of the of the trip. So uh, there was an element um, that, that I meant something different to each and every, every, every peoples. But I think um, uh, in the end, uh, there is this sense uh, of, if you like, uh, brotherhood um, across the the many nations and cultures of the Eurasian steppe all tied together with, with the horse. I think anyone who's interested in researching or interrogating history uh, always carries with them a, a certain grief or sadness at what can no longer be discovered, that's been lost to time and will never be able to be retrieved through circumstances as they may have been throughout generations. And I imagine for many of these people who were taking a little bit of what your journey was and, and forming it into something that they could relate to or that represented uh, that, that that it was that sentiment is that 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 almost that grief that on we have lost of you know what was once great and and tangible and as you say in in, uh, in harmony with the environment and with their ancestors which had been taken from them that this was just just a small modicum of hope passing through completely unexpectedly uh, that was able to give uh, physical form to that sentiment that maybe there is the potential for that to be brought back one day or to be revisited or, or reborn in a new form but nonetheless continued. Yeah and I think uh, it's pretty obvious uh, everybody knows that you do not have to get on a horse to traverse a continent these days. <laughs> I, I, I could have flown in a plane, I could have driven a car, probably could have walked faster given you know the bureaucracy I dealt with on board as it held me up probably by six months. Um, but 
I think in the modern era, uh, it's it's really not not the point. We we choose to do these things to learn. Uh, we choose to do these things to live by our our values. And the big challenge for places like Hungary, uh, like Kazakhstan today, is how do you move forward into the future um, whilst holding tradition and that the incredible wisdom that's accumulated over so long uh, in one hand whilst also being adaptable to change and embracing uh, the new horizons uh, that inevitably are coming all of our direction. Um, and it was kind of ironic for me to think in retrospect that in places like Mongolia today in the city, uh, people are racing as quickly as they can towards uh, being as far removed from nomadic life, if, if, if you like, as possible. Um, many people, um, I mean, there's, there's not many people in Mongolia who are more than one or two generations removed from nomadic life. And nomadic life is harsh. And there's certainly that, that side to it. And, um, but on the other hand, the other extreme of the steppe, places like Kalmykia, uh, parts of Kazakhstan and Hungary, uh, there's this extraordinary mourning for what they've lost and they would do anything to get it back. Um, and so conversely, since the trips ended, I've been going back to Mongolia every year. Last year, because of COVID, was the first time I haven't been there for 12 years. And when I return to Mongolia every year, uh, what strikes them um, is that is is my is is this this lesson that what they have uh, is extremely valuable and it's worth preserving. And when you're living in the midst of it, uh, you can easily lose sight of that. Um, but but um, once I think you lose too much, there is no way back. And that's sadly what some of these cultures have have discovered. Um, it becomes a a, a museum. Uh, or uh, of memories rather than a lived experience. I hadn't even thought about it in that respect, but you're so right. It's it's by coming from a completely separate part of the world, a completely different background, and yet dedicating a huge amount of time and effort to understanding and, and to living that experience, it does value it in, in a really special way, I imagine, for people to know that, that that effort has been put in by you on something that they maybe have taken for granted or, or didn't think of as, as valuable as maybe you'd shown it to be. And that's a really nice sort of global moment isn't it you know where globalization meets this really quite localized uh cultural need even yes and there were many times when i was accused of being in a race or perhaps someone had set me a challenge of riding to hungary because there was a pot of gold at the end or uh, (laughs) i was accused of being a, a horse rustler a vodka trader a cheese trader um i was even uh, suspected of being a chamomile flower uh, collector at one point in the trip. Uh, very few people would have at first believed I was an Australian riding horses from, from Mongolia to, to Hungary. And one of the benefits of being an outsider is that uh, there, there was none of the preconceptions that, that have developed over thousands of years um, between these many different cultures. So I found myself uh, being the ambassador for Mongolian culture among the Kazakhs, but the ambassador of Kazakhs among the Kalmyks. Uh, I'd leap to the Kalmyks' defence among the Cossacks, and uh, among the Tatars, I would uh, I would defend the Russians, and vice versa. When I was with the Russians, I would be deeply offended when I heard this kind of stereotyped, uh, accusatory language used towards Tatars, um, and on and on it went. Um, so um, I, I felt as if I had an obligation, having been been uh, taken in and hosted and told their personal stories, uh, an obligation to tell that story to those who who perhaps hadn't had the opportunity and would never be given the opportunity because they wouldn't be welcomed as neutrally as, as I was. This life, in some ways, it sounds a bit intoxicating. You know, when you've been in this place and with these people and living this way for three and a half years, I'm trying to imagine coming to the end of that and making a decision about having to 
come home um, or to leave that behind, you know, as a way of life, obviously to be revisited, but certainly not uh, continued in the same way. What was that moment like when you got to the last few weeks of the journey, the last few months of the journey, and, and you realized that this extraordinary portion of your life was coming to a close? There were times on the trip where it felt like it would never come to an end uh, in good and bad ways. Uh, there were times when I didn't want it to ever end. Uh, six months before I did uh, reach the Danube River, I'd had this, this, this terrible moment where I received a message from Australia that my father had been in a car accident and, and sadly been killed. Um, he'd only retired one year earlier and um, we'd stayed in touch during that year more than, than usual and we'd, we'd developed a deeper connection in some ways from afar. Um, I'd gone back to Australia for four months before returning and, and finally now continuing the journey to the, to the finish. And so that l the last couple of thousand Ks felt acutely difficult because life felt very, very fragile. Um, it, it was hard to make sense of how my dad at 56 uh, had died in a, in, in a car accident and I was meeting, I remember one lady in Ukraine who was 90, 93, I think, who'd only learnt to read at the age of 80, uh, who had survived the horrors of, uh, I think, perhaps even World War I. Um, I don't know how good my maths is right now. <laughs> uh, but certainly, Holodomor, the, the terrible famine uh, in Ukraine in the late 1920s, early 30s. Uh, she'd survived World War II, the crashing down of the Soviet Union, um, and um, places that, and experiences that you would assume that the chances of survival were very, very low. And here was my dad in the, in a very safe country, uh, his life taken away in, in, um, in the blink of an eye. And I guess by the time I reached Hungary, I was deeply sad knowing that this was the end of a way of life uh, to, that I would probably never experience riding that, with that sense of purpose and freedom with my horses and Tiggin. Um, but on the other hand, it felt as if the time had come. I'd reached the end of the step beyond the Danube. There was no point to ride onwards. It was the beginning of the land of fences, of the sedentary cultures, uh, where my type of travel wasn't possible. Um, and with my dad passing away, there's this, there was this whole new realisation of just how important uh, human our capacity as humans to have relationships is. There's this saying in Kazakh that mountains never meet, but, but people do. And that wouldn't have made any sense to me way back when I was 18 and I was doing everything to bust out of home and, and experience unfamiliar places. When I went to Finland, for example, to study as a wilderness guide, um, I was starting to treasure the, the value of uh, the opportunity to spend time with loved ones, with family, with friends, with with, fam with familiar people, and so I was. I promised myself to go home and cherish time with family and never forget that. Uh, and and there were many times when I did crave that, and I can still remember them uh, like it was uh, like it was last night. <laughs> um, and so there was this this great sense of um, looking forwards and, and anticipation of coming home looking back and feeling sadness, uh, but a wonderful sense of achievement all, all rolled into one. And of course, the putting all that aside, one of the, the, the greatest intimidating things and daunting things about the future was that I felt this, this incredible obligation now to make sense of it all and tell my stories. Um, in a way, it would all be meaningless if I kept all this to myself. And as someone who'd uh, wanted to be an author from the age of 12, um, I had this, this book, if you like, inside, inside me, uh, but how on earth would I navigate the path ahead to, to make head and tail of it uh, in what, I, what would be a very different world that I was returning to? There's, um, there's a tremendous value in that synthesis process of, of reflecting on those experiences and then drawing the value from them that you can then give to other people and, and taking those lessons from all of those individuals who mapped out that journey and, and as you've suggested passed you on like a baton from one to the other but in, in indelible ways leaving their mark and then being able to to transmit that to other people but then the next part of that process is not just sharing that with people but then having that 
impact on your life going forward and, and how that decision making continues on to be made. And I'm interested now when you look at what your path is from here, there's a natural tension in, in what you've described. There's that love of home, that love of family, that value in relationships. But then there's also that desperate need to experience the unknown, to travel the path that's uncertain and to find that wonder. And how do you how do you find the the path between those competing objectives? Um, extremely difficult. Yeah. Uh, and yet it's also that very same tightrope that uh, that I guess led me to this adventure in the first place. That tightrope between uh, taking life in your own hands and having the the gall to write the script of your own life, um, whilst on the other hand, uh, also respecting that in some ways your script has been written. Uh, there are loved ones in your life. Um, that uh, there are also very, very many unpredictable events that are about to come your way, and so that uh, I think. If you approach life as an adventure, then there's always going to be that tension, and that's what can sometimes hone the sense of focus, uh, can distill things down to to the important uh, the important ingredients, um, because you know, as they say, trust in fate, but always tie up the up the camel. Um, <laughs> uh, we're, we're probably guilty in our culture of of planning so much to the point that we don't leave room for the unexpected. Um, you know, so, so how do you be the master of your destiny but allow destiny to be your master uh, at the same time? That's the inherent tension, I think, that, 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 that's, can rel- that relates to what you're talking about. Um, and um, being able to somehow differentiate between, well, is this a decision, bec- uh, a, a decision of... Of purpose, or am I, or is this simply uh, the easy path? And I'll never forget the moment that I cut the umbilical cord and started this journey. I mean, it was, it did feel like uh, a death in life in the sense that I knew I was saying goodbye to my brothers and my sister and my mum, my dad, who I was close with, for the for for who knew how long, um, and and yet it was cutting the umbilical cord and heading into the unknown that also. Um, enabled me to value those relationships and value that comfort and familiarity in a way that that I would have been oblivious to in the first place. So um, I think there's something to be said for, uh, and perhaps we don't have enough ceremony uh, in our lives, but uh, making sure that those milestones in life are recognised, that there are moments uh, where... You recognise that that chapter of your life, which is finite, has ended, and drawing a line, um, and having the the guts to say goodbye to that and start anew. And when I'm speaking with uh, school students, point out the fact that uh, the destination in life, you know, be at the end of school, be at the end of a project. For me, the Danube River in Hungary, um, it's only ever going to mean as much as you've put yourself out there to learn along the way. You'll get there one way or another perhaps, uh, but it's not not about that. Uh, There's no substitute for going out and having your one-on-one time uh, with with the earth (laughs) uh, in all its forms. And um, I certainly know that had I not jumped on that saddle to start with, I wouldn't have met all those, those incredible human beings that that have transformed, that, that taught me so much and transformed um, my life. And uh, if, if there's anything that living with animals teaches you, it's that life is very short. Uh, just two days ago, I received the sad news that Taskinier, my lead horse, um, who seemed at times indomitable, he was uh, just a hero of a horse who carried me through very difficult times. He, he was 29 years old and on Sunday morning he woke up and uh, couldn't stand. And on Tuesday night he uh, uh, <coughs> exhaled for the, for, the, for the last time. And um, it, it's, uh, it's extraordinary to me to think that uh, life really does, as they tell you when you're a kid, it does pass in the blink of an eye. And uh, as you've mentioned, 
life will pass. Uh, these milestones will come up, um, but um, it's extremely important to to uh, not just let it pass by. To uh, make every moment count. Um, yeah, and uh, very cliche, of course, but um, very, very true. Maybe cliche, but it, but it, it, the truth is reinforced when there's a lived experience behind it, and and I think your experience is such a testament to that. Um, uh, what we might consider to be common knowledge, but I think it's actually quite uncommonly appreciated um, in perhaps the the depth and way in which you've been able to describe it. So. I can't really think of a better place to leave it than there, Tim. Uh, I'm so grateful for you sharing your story and your experiences and reflecting on them with me today. Um, and uh, I really hope that everyone who's listening has gotten the same value as I have uh, from from uh, hearing your story and, and being able to talk to you about it. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. And uh, yeah, it's been a really, really nice in-depth conversation and quite quite timely for me as well. <laughs>